0: It's May, 1945. Church President Heber J. Grant passes away. In Europe, Berlin falls to the Allied forces. German saints now face the task of rebuilding their lives and their church. In the Pacific, on the island of Okinawa, American soldier Neil Maxwell finds himself under intense Japanese shelling. His hope clings to the promises he's read in the smudged copy of his patriarchal blessing. These challenging times are next in Chapter 30, Such Grief. This is Saints, Volume 3,
1: the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Joining us today, we have Corey Maxwell, a son of Neal Maxwell, one of the characters in this chapter. And we're also joined by Bob Freeman, a professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. Thank you both for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Pleasure to join you.
1: Well, Bob, you are joining us today as a bit of an expert, as it were, in Latter-day Saints and military conflicts. This has been one of your areas of research. I guess if you could just tell us a little bit about how it was you came to be interested in this topic.
0: Well, you're generous in your introduction. I will just say I have been for a long time now a observer and an admirer of those who have gone forth in times of war, various conflicts, and have been dedicated to the purpose of preserving freedom. And when placed into the context of the faith of our church, well, it makes for a powerful dynamic because we are first and foremost disciples of Christ, and Christ is the Prince of Peace, and yet laid against the backdrop of terrible thing we call war, it creates tensions to understand that and how it's navigated by individuals who go forth in times of war has been a really important focus of my professional life and of my research.
3: Thank you for that introduction, Bob. We appreciate knowing where your interests are and more about your profession. So thank you. Well, we have been following Helga and the European saints sometime now, In saints as they endure the conflict. Bob, can you help us understand the significance of this worldwide war and the impact it had specifically on the church and its members?
0: I'm very happy to respond to that question. It's important really to place this against the backdrop that those who went forth to serve during World War II were the sons and daughters of those who had endured the Great War or World War I. And the time period, approximately 20 years between those two wars, was really dynamic for the church. And one measure of that is that increasingly, general leadership of the church had encouraged members in the global setting to remain in their homelands and to build up the church in those places. So that by the time that World War II breaks out, We have significant global presence of the church so that, for example, when we think of World War II, so often the dynamic or the place of Germany in that war is a first and foremost focus. And to realize that membership of the church in Germany ranked just third in the world at that time instantly brings into focus why this is an important story to understand And so that's one measure, is that the global emergence of the church into the global community is a really important perspective. The impact is tremendous. At least the general measures we have of that time have nearly 100,000 Latter-day Saints involved in the conflict overtly, either serving in a military context involvement, maybe uh, home front industries and other support roles, And when you consider that the membership of the church had yet to exceed a million people, that's a remarkable statistic. So it's a huge impact, and it's multinational, and it's in a context of a war that is like none other previous to that in the church experience. So it's a big story.
1: Thank you, Bob. And... This is one of the most significant events of the 20th century, and and it shaped many societies and cultures and the ways that we do things in the world. And at this point in the story, we see that Berlin, this is the end of it. This is the end of the Third Reich. This is the end of, of Hitler's dreams of a world order. But there are still people living in the city. There are men, women, children who are surrounded by armies that are there to defeat the, the Nazis. I wonder if you could just tell us about the state of the city. You know, What were conditions like at this point for Latter-day Saints, but also just for the general German public?
0: Well, as we near the end of the war, of course, there have been five years of fighting. The United States came into the fray a little later than Germany and other nations. So the city of Berlin is in disarray, the nation of Germany is ravaged, it's increasingly obvious that they will eventually succumb to the Allied invasion, and there are desperate measures being taken. I'm reminded of just one example of that. a snapshot, if you will, young Enzio Busha, who will later be a general authority leader of the church, who at the age of 14 is drafted into the service. And he says himself, he hardly knew which end of the rifle to hold. He didn't want to fire. He's enlisted with about 30 others of similar age, really uh, constantly on the run. And he really is grateful when he is eventually captured by the Americans and able to step to the side of the war and just hope that the fatherland, as he discusses it, will be preserved and that peace can come again to his homeland and life can return to some form of normalcy. And I think this is a perspective shared by many of his fellow countrymen at that time.
3: Well, Bob, kind of as a follow-up to that, You've described these very difficult conditions. So how and why were the Germans still fighting at this point?
0: Well, I think it's very insightful to the irrational nature of the leadership. We learn in the Doctrine Covenant, says uh, section 98, when the wicked rule, the people mourn. And there is just no better example I can look to in history where the tyrannical purpose and leadership of those at the head have wrought such destruction on their very own people and set them further back in any hopes of normalcy. And yet they fight on and eventually it all collapses. But it is a remarkable insight into
1: history that the war could go to this point and to that date. Well, it sounds awful. The danger, the conditions, everything about it. My heart bleeds for people suffering at this time. Thinking for a moment about the Latter-day Saints, however, I wonder if you could tell us about any of the risks that they were susceptible to during these final stages of the war. It's instructional to just know throughout the war that
0: there was a tenuous balance that the church had to maintain in Germany just to conduct regular meetings of the saints and to be perceived as not being against the power of the Third Reich. And this is ongoing and always present. Near the end of the war, the majority of Latter-day Saints, their homes are either fully destroyed or really uninhabitable for the time. And they're increasingly going to have to unite with other Latter-day Saints. And uh, we see the development of what are termed sort of affectionately welfare homes, where families from various communities come together, unite and combine their resources and somehow try to meet the very most basic needs of, of shelter and of food and clothing. All of this they're doing under the watchful eye of Hitler's regime and just try not to uh, necessarily rock the boat, if you will, so that they can be preserved as a religious community, and truly their lives can be preserved. So they're in a very difficult state, and it's a very hard moment.
3: Thank you for describing that a little bit more to give us additional context. I've said this before on the podcast, I'm sure I'll say it again, but I have just been so fascinated to Experience the war through different perspectives of Latter-day Saints around the world. And we would just love to know, Bob, what other stories from World War II involving Latter-day Saints are inspiring to you? Oh, so many,
0: so, so many. It is in fact why I haven't been able to move away from this field of research. It's so engaging and so important to preserve. I'll pivot if I may just for a moment, back stateside looking at the home front, the countless stories of women and mothers of families whose husbands and fathers are off to war, whose sons are off to war, whose daughters are off to war in support roles very often, the home industries, the self-reliance, the victory garden mental state. I think of a family in Northern Utah, the Borgstroms, who within the space of just six months lost four sons involved in the fighting. How can we measure that kind of grief for a mother and father? And yet strong and somehow resilient, they continue on and in fact offer that if called upon to send forth a fifth son, I do believe it was their last son, they would have answered their nation's call. That kind of sacrifice
1: is pretty hard to measure. Thank you so much for sharing that story there. And Bob, if I take a step back for just one second, we know that there are many people that hated the war. They didn't want to talk about it afterwards. They moved on with life. Society tried to get on with things. Why should stories of saints involved in war, whether it's on the home front or in battlefields, why should it be preserved? What good would that do today?
0: Ooh, great question. I think there has to be an ultimate hope that by learning through history and those who've experienced it, even of this most dreadful sort, that lessons can be gleaned, which might help avert a future calamity of this kind. And if we can, in just some measure, have that hope, then it's well worth any efforts we might make to help and preserve those voices and preserve that history. So I think that's the answer I might choose to put forth is a hopeful one.
3: That's wonderful. And it just makes me look forward to talking to Corey later too, because I think we're just so fortunate to have so much about Neil Maxwell and his experience. I'm looking forward to that. Well, Bob, how did Latter-day Saints manage to live the gospel while they were so isolated from other members and in such dire circumstances in a lot of times?
0: Essentially, in setting like Great Britain and even in Germany, they're cut off from the central headquarters of the church at a time when communications would be so different than they are today. And the miracle of that is, is that they thrived in many ways, even notwithstanding the challenge of the time and the danger of the time, and learned in some sense that the saints could do more uh, locally in that regard. And I haven't studied this at any great depth, but, you know, missionaries were looked to as the strength or backbone of a lot of branches in the international setting. And this revealed a capacity to do more in self-reliance in managing a branch and a setting. And that turned out to be a blessing of longer duration, went beyond the war. As then Europe rebuilds and the church begins to extend itself and grow, and, and entire nations were introduced to the gospel in this window of time because there were, in some sense, missionaries with a different kind of uniform that were in these settings, conducting ordinations, conducting meetings, things that, until that time, the church hadn't been on a map in some places.
1: And I think that's an excellent point. And thinking about isolation for a moment, I'm just going to share one extra story that fell on the cutting room floor, but could equally be a book in its own right. And that's in Paris during the war. We had a branch that had been operating there. And when the war started, the missionaries were pulled away and the branch kind of collapsed, as it were, during the wartime conditions. But there was a French Latter-day Saint from the south of France, a priesthood holder, who would periodically travel up to Paris at his own risk, Léon Fargier. And there were members of the church in Paris from other historians. We know that some of them were involved in the resistance against the Nazis. Others would bake bread for the sacrament when they could have that. I mean, it's remarkable that against the odds people are still willing to live the gospel. If everything just falls apart and there's wars and you're losing children, neighbours are dying, people's faith could just collapse. But time and time again, we see people of faith, not just Latter-day Saints, Mm -hmm. who do their best to maintain their faith and draw strength from it in the face of what could be described in some cases as pure evil. Well, Bob, moving on, I wonder if you could... Speak a little bit more specifically to the ways in which the Latter-day Saints servicemen were able to help build up the church and share the gospel through their military service.
0: We have to remember that, generally speaking, those that are going forth and are going to be at the battle's front are relatively young in their age, and in many cases even in their maturity in the gospel. They're meeting during the week in some settings in a young men's organization type association. That's where they are in stage and age of life. And so they're being thrust into settings in many times. They couldn't have placed on a map previous to the conflict. They didn't even know where these places were. I was just reviewing one such account in the last day or so where the Latter-day Saint conveying the story is talking about he's in the Army Air Corps and they're making raids over the Palesti oil fields in uh, Romania and that the danger that surrounds that is just immense. And yet they convene meetings where at first just a few Latter-day Saints are coming, and then others hear of it, and they want to come together, and they want to meet more often. And sort of on the eve of one of these heavier raids, which I've checked to kind of coordinate with how well it's documented in history, and it compares well, they have folks that they've never seen show up at these meetings. And they just want some assurance that there is a God in heaven, that they have a hope somehow that if they lose their lives in their service, that there is an eternity and that there is a hope for them in eternity. And these young Latter-day Saints take that moment and really shine forth with testimony and their difference makers in the lives of those that they're serving with. And I think that's a remarkable part of the story of Latter-day Saints in World War II.
3: Well, thank you so much, Bob. I just feel that we're so fortunate to have you to be able to provide so much information on things that you've researched and that you understand so thoroughly. Thank you.
0: Well, you're kind. Now I look forward to being very, very reverent and just <laughs> sitting here and listening.
3: Well, <laughs> with that, we we are going to shift to talk to Corey about his father's service. So to start out with, Corey, how and when did you learn about your father's involvement in the Second World War?
2: It's a wonderful question. I don't know that I could tell you exactly when, but I think it would have been in my mid to late teens. I knew very well from a fairly young age that dad had an interest in World War II history, that he'd read a fair amount about it. But as far as actually hearing about his experiences on Okinawa, I think that probably would not have been long before I left on my mission as a young man. And it's interesting, I asked my wife that question You know, how long had she known my father, how long would we have been married when she first heard him talk about his service in the war? And she said it was several years. And that I know is common for a lot who served in the war, but as I've talked to a few people who would have known dad, he didn't talk about it in a lot of detail. And I think part of that is that he tended to be understated by nature anyway and did not like to draw attention to himself. But I think he probably also worried about the bearing capacity of the people that he was talking to. And they either might not be able to understand what he'd really been through, or if they did, that they would be bothered by it or worried about it. In one of the letters that he sent to his family during the action on Okinawa, he said, we've seen some tough action, but we'll have to wait to explain. I can only say that God prevented my death at times. That's the extent of the detail that he gave to his family at that point. He kind of broke that pattern a little bit in a couple of devotional messages he gave at BYU where I think my mother prevailed on him to be a little more autobiographical than he would typically be. But even in those two talks... He probably didn't spend more than a minute or two talking about his experience on Okinawa. And most of what he talked about is the promise that he made to God, asking that he would be preserved. And if he were preserved, that he would spend his life serving God and that he still owed this great debt of gratitude to God. He wouldn't really talk about the specifics or the bloodshed or the heroics much.
1: The action in the story is so dramatic that battles generally, you know, there's explosions, there's gunfire, there's death, there's destruction. Today, we see ourselves 80 years later from the start of the war. And there have been other wars since and there will be other wars, I suppose, other hardships that come with that. But I wonder how did the conflict affect your father's view of war and military service as a result of his experiences?
2: I think he
1: had great respect for those who served in the military.
2: I think that probably would have been true before his service, but it certainly was true after his service. I mean, I didn't talk in great detail with him about his views on war generally, but I think he felt after his experience fighting in World War II that the gospel was the way to really address the problems that we face in the world and that in some cases— war may be necessary as tragic and as difficult as it is. But it's interesting, when I was growing up in my teenage years during the war in Vietnam, and as you probably remember, there was a lottery at that point to see who would be drafted to serve in Vietnam. And my number came out pretty low, and uh, mom and dad really did not want me to go to Vietnam. And it wasn't that they weren't patriotic or didn't think I was patriotic. I just think that's typical for most parents. They want to protect their child from the ravages and the scars that can come, emotional scars as well as physical scars that can come from from war. His mother had a really hard time with his volunteering to serve in World War II. She, at one point, I can't remember where it was in his training, but she said, I know a colonel uh, in the area that he was being trained in, and I could talk to him and see if I could find a way where you could avoid action. I mean, actual hand-to-hand combat and those kind of things. And dad just felt, I signed up for this and I need to serve.
3: Well, and he certainly didn't avoid any action. In just reading these experiences in the book, we read about him in the foxholes, and it is so powerful so terrifying. I just felt so engaged with all the imagery that was portrayed. I could just feel how he may have been feeling. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, how did these moments shape him?
2: Uh, Dramatically, I would say. I mean, I think he had a testimony of the gospel when he left to serve in the war, but it provided an opportunity for him to draw closer to God. And I think that solemn promise he made to serve God throughout his life If his life was preserved, Uh, I think really the rest of his life was an effort to try to fulfill that promise. And he never felt like he could do that. But I think he spent his life really trying to honor the commitment that he made to God at that point. So, I mean, there would have been many powerful experiences that he had. He loved his family, he loved my mother so much, but I just think that was one of those turning points, one of those pivot points in his life that set his life on a path to really love the gospel and live it and to be willing to serve others.
1: Well, that brings up a good point because in the last chapter, we read about how we have a young Neil Maxwell who's full of youthful patriotism. He's wanting to go and fight for his country and, and to do the right thing. But here we start to see he's lonely. He's Mm -hmm. he's dealing with the horrors of war so far from his loved ones. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could just give us any insights into what it was that kept him going. How did he persist despite all of these challenges? I really think his
2: growing love of the gospel, I mean, he had an opportunity to study the gospel more when he was in the military. I think his love for the Lord and really for his own family Knowing that his family was praying for him. I think that helped him keep going. He had a copy of his patriarchal blessing, apparently a smudged copy of his patriarchal blessing that he put in his pocket that I, I'm sure he read regularly. But it was very lonely. In one of his letters home when he was on Okinawa in the midst of the fighting, he said, I had a dream the other night. He had a very a toddler, a young sister Carol, and he said, You were holding Carol up, and I, my dad, was saying boo to her, and she laughed just as she so does he said boy if that didn't make me blue it's tough here so it really was hard but I think if you asked him he would say that as difficult as that experience was it affected the trajectory of his life in a way that probably nothing else at that point in his life could have done
3: I know you said he didn't share a lot with family and friends, but where did he keep really good journals of his service? Did he did the information come from letters?
2: Oh no, that's, that's a great question. There weren't really journals. There were some letters that he sent home from his military service, and then they would send what they call V-mails. I mean, I guess it's somewhat similar, Bob would probably know more, but almost like a postcard, it's short because they were in the midst of heavy action and there wasn't a lot of time to write. So he wrote a number of V-mails, and most of what I know and what's in his biography about his experience on that one key night really come from those V-mails and his experience about preparing the sacrament based on rainwater he'd collected in his helmet and sea rations for the bread that came from those very brief emails. And he talks about writing one of them on a kerosene container because that's the only writing service he really had.
1: Corey, can you share any other stories from your father's service
2: that he related to you? One thing that I didn't learn about until fairly late in his life We don't know the exact date, but at some point while he was in the midst of that fighting on Okinawa, he learned from an aunt that his mother and father said their prayers one night, knelt by their beds and said their prayers and then got into bed. And a few minutes later, my grandmother, his mother Emma, said, Clarence, to her husband, we've got to pray for Neil. He's in grave danger. And so they got out of bed again and offered a prayer. And I think he knew that his parents were that way. He knew that they would exercise that kind of faith in his behalf. And that, to me, has always been a tender story. There were tough stories that you hear about of people that he came to love as fellow servicemen who were killed. This is a gruesome story, but at one family gathering, as he was reflecting a little bit on his experience, he talked about their efforts to take this, I think it was called Flat Top Hill, where they were trying to take that hill for the Allied soldiers. There was someone in his unit who was assigned to carry a flamethrower. And a lot of people probably wouldn't know what that looks like, and I don't know a lot. But basically, if you think of a water hose, except that you're throwing flames and you're trying to remove the Japanese forces from bunkers and from caves and everything that they're hiding in because Okinawa, as I understand it, was basically an ambush plan. Let the Allied forces land on the island fairly easily and then go after them from positions of ambush. Anyway, this friend of dad's had this flamethrower and so he was going up this hill using it to get the Japanese out of these hiding places. He was hit and went down and was obviously killed and dad said one of the other servicemen near him picked up the flamethrower pack off his back, put it on his shoulders, started going up the hill to, to finish the job that this fellow soldier was killed trying to do. And like I say, that sounds gruesome, but in a way, it just helped me get a better idea of the bravery and the heroism of these soldiers. And I found myself thinking, if I'd been in that situation, could I have really done something like that? I probably don't want to answer that question, but there were a few stories like that that helped me understand how difficult serving in that kind of a wartime setting was.
3: Corey, we won't find out any more about Neil Maxwell in this volume, but can you tell us a little bit about what he goes on to do after the war Sure. and how he goes about building a life for himself?
2: Yeah. After he returns from serving in the military... He did really want to go on a mission. That was one of the things he felt he could do to express his gratitude to Heavenly Father. He'd saved money for it, but he wasn't called on a mission right away. And he tells a story about going in and knocking on the bishop's office door and saying, I wanna go on a mission. And the bishop understandably had felt that he'd been away for 18 months or two years. I don't remember exactly how long it was and he needed time with his family. But I think Dad felt like he'd had some good time with his family, and he wanted to serve. And so Dad would probably say that that manifested early in his life, an arc-steadying tendency that he sometimes had. It was sort of a, let's get this show on the road. I mean, he was a deep thinker, a profound thinker, obviously, but he was a man of action. And you think of the phrase, anxiously engaged— That really describes him to a T. Anyway, he went on his mission, came back and was getting his education at the University of Utah when he met my mother. They got married and before long started a family. But then he went back to Washington, D.C. and worked there for a few years and then received an offer to return to the University of Utah and work in the public relations area and ultimately served in the administration there and, and then was called to serve as a commissioner of education for the church and later as a general authority. And you just see that consistent theme of his wanting to be of service, to express his thanks to God and his desire to honor the promise that he'd made.
3: I'd love to know, what are some of the ways that your family honors the sacrifices that your father and then, of course, millions of others have made to provide freedom for those after them?
2: I'd like to say that we've done a lot, but we have tried in some ways. We have gathered for years on the 4th of July as an extended family, my sisters and I, and our children and even grandchildren to celebrate the 4th of July. And at some of those gatherings, Dad would talk about his experiences a little bit, but even more than that, he'd talk about the founding of the nation and the Constitutional Convention and lessons that he'd learned as he'd read about key political figures or military figures. And mom was a part of that, too. She would talk about just the founding of our nation and the freedoms that we have and the blessings that we have. Because we have the freedoms that have been preserved by those who fought in the military, he would recommend good books about war and and particularly World War II to me and to others. So I guess it was contagious. I developed a fascination with World War II particularly, but with military history generally and later on in life as our children started growing and this is of course before netflix and things like that where you go to the blockbuster someplace to rent a video my children never wanted me to go because they thought "Oh, don't send dad he'll just come back with some world war ii movie <laughs> because i was fascinated by it, And I, I was inspired by the heroics of those who served in the military but just one other experience that i wanted to share it was in the celebration of the landing at normandy on june sixth of 1944 Dad was watching something on TV, and it was a news report. And at one of the places where the event was being honored and celebrated, they were showing a tomb to an unknown soldier. And one of the soldiers guarding that tomb had been wounded himself in a later war, had lost his leg. And so you saw him walking back and forth on one good leg and one artificial leg. And as I watched my dad watch that, he got tears in his eyes because that just was so moving to him and I'm sure reminiscent of some of the things that he experienced in the war. Could I mention just one other thing? Sure. Servicemen's conferences were held, uh, particularly during the end of the war and, and even after the war. And dad does mention attending a couple of those and it was interesting to me to learn later in life, in fact, after my father had passed away, that there was a photograph of a serviceman's conference where you could just barely make him out. And the other person who attended that conference was a young Boyd K. Packer, President Packer. This was an experience that helped many people grow spiritually. And I think the biography talks about dad going to one of these servicemen's conferences where he kept looking back at the door, hoping he would see someone come in that he'd lost track of during the fighting and some made it and some didn't because they didn't survive the war i
0: remember elder maxwell saying just so clearly that he was grateful he never came to hate the japanese yep that he knew that there were many that came to have such intense hatred for the enemy but that he had been providentially preserved from having that sediment many years later would come back to Okinawa in an ecclesiastical role and see what came later in that setting church-wise. I believe he dedicates a chapel in that vicinity.
2: You're right, Bob. I think he never did feel any hatred toward the Japanese or the Germans, for that matter. And he tells about being in occupation uh, Japan after the war and seeing these mothers and their children dealing with poverty, going through garbage cans to try to find food for their children and just how horrible he felt about that. I think it was in 1973, he was serving as Commissioner of Education at the time and had an opportunity in visiting some church schools to go back to Okinawa. He visited the site where, as near as he could tell, where his foxhole was, and it was overgrown by that time with sugarcane. And he had someone take a photograph of him pointing to where his foxhole would have been. And I guess he cut a little piece of sugar cane and brought it back. And so I had for years in our home, that photograph of him pointing to his foxhole with that little piece of sugar cane mounted to it. I mean, you just know from that experience how much that meant to him. And then he did speak at a meeting of Japanese members in a chapel there on Okinawa on that trip.
1: Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Corey. And thank you both so much for joining us today and giving us some additional content to think about as we read this chapter and as we reflect on the stories of real latter-day saints who've given us their story to tell for the benefit of all latter-day saints today thank you for listening to this week's episode we hope you enjoyed it we hope you took away some new insights into this volume and we would love to hear your thoughts opinions questions and insights from this chapter of saints and you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org it would be great to hear from you